Well, and welcome. Welcome back. I'm David Widmar, of course, co-founder of Agricultural Economic Insights, joining you this week for another installment of our weekly recording where we share a few ideas that we've learned and that we've tried to capture in recent articles on AEI Premium. So this week, a couple ideas came to mind. We were thinking about double cropping and also gasoline consumption and gasoline usage. So let's flip over for those of you who are watching the YouTube version of this. Let's talk a little bit about double crop acres. And that's a little background. I actually grew up on a farm in Southern Kansas and we double cropped nearly every soybean acre. So I come from a long background of double cropping. Jeff Young, who does our weekly updates of the yield progress or the crop progress reports and the yields, he also comes from a double crop farm. So there's a a lot of uh, double crop history here, but it's caught our attention that double cropping seems to be the next silver bullet or the most attractive nickel bullet that policymakers are pursuing in light of tight grain stocks. Here in the U.S., you know, we aren't necessarily, it's difficult in the U.S. to find new acres, but that doesn't mean we can't increase harvested acres or planted acres. And double cropping is a way of doing that. And the primary way of doing that is planting soybeans following the winter wheat crop. So the president's been talking about it. Policymakers are sort of trying to figure out ways that they can incentivize this. And we'll talk a little bit about that that towards the end. But let's talk a little about the data. And the first thing that jumped out at us is there's just really not a lot of data around double cropping. And if you think about it just for a little bit, it kind of makes sense as to why that might be the case is that the NASA's traditional methods of trying to estimate production of corn and soybeans and wheat, they're just out there asking how many acres of soybeans do you intend to plant? How many acres of wheat do you intend to plant? And so they're not splitting these into, you know, double crop versus first crop. Or so they're not necessarily taking, they don't have the resources, both the survey money, but also the attention, the time with the participants to really dive into those details. And so you know, we generally just try to do a really good job of capturing total soybean production or total wheat production, not necessarily split this up. But that said, the USDA's June acreage report does have an interesting table towards the back that says, hey, these are all of the total soybean acres in the US, but also at the state level that we think based on the survey responses are going to be soybeans following another harvested crop. And so those are expressed as a percentage of the planted acres at the state or the national level. So we can back that out and get a little bit of an annual estimate as to what exactly double crop soybean acres were. And so we did that this week uh, in this week's report. And so you can take a look at this. And one thing that we noticed is prevented plant soybean acres in 2021 were around 4.4 million acres. Uh, There was a hive of about 7.7 million acres in 2020. 13, of course, we we're coming off these really big commodity price highs at that point. We planted a lot more wheat back in 2013. Uh, in 2014, they planted about 5.8 million acres. And double cropping also hit a low of about 3 million acres back in 2019. So we can see here at these extremes, high commodity prices. We had a lot of double crop going on. Trade war lows, 2019, we didn't have a lot of double cropping going on. Of course, also a big prevent plant year in 2019. So there are a lot of factors that play into this, but 
you know, get an idea of what's going on at the national level. We can also look at this at the state level. And for those of you who are wondering which state has the most acres of double crop soybeans, uh, drum roll, please, at more than 700,000 acres, it was North Carolina in 2021. In fact, North Carolina doesn't have very many soybean acres at all, about 1.7 million. We outlined this in the article, but about 43% of those acres were following another crop. And so we can see that soybean, double crop soybean production, uh, the, the biggest state doesn't necessarily occur in the traditional Midwest or Great Plains. Put a pin in that thought. And we're going to revisit that here in the next graph or two. So as we move through the states, of course, Illinois and Tennessee have about 400,000 acres each. And then a slug of states here come in slightly above or slightly below 300,000. Missouri, Kansas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Indiana. So there's a wide, you know, of these 4.4 million acres, they're spread across in their, you know, in familiar states that you might anticipate, but also unfamiliar states. States like maybe Tennessee or Kentucky or Oklahoma, these maybe not in North Carolina especially, aren't traditional big soybean states, but we see this double cropping story play out. One of the other data sources that we dug into was the crop insurance database. And if you really get in the weeds of that database, you can find a designation for the practice of following another crop. And when we dug into that, we found that there are about 2.5 million acres double crop soybeans insured in 2021. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's 4.4 million estimated at the NAS level. And you could spend a lot of time kind of going in that rabbit hole and trying to line those data. And there's a lot of reasons why that might be different. For example, uh, you could have prevented planting, which could have more acres insured than actually planted. But the idea here is double cropping might primarily be a largely uninsured venture. And I bring this up because we've seen the policymakers really trying to talk about how can we tweak the crop insurance program to make double cropping more attractive. Maybe we add more counties to the program or we uh, maybe incentivize producers to, to plant that with a discount on crop insurance. But by and large, when we looked at this data and there are maybe other ways of looking at this, I think that's a we hope other researchers who are listening to this or other ag professionals who are looking at this can you know, share insights that they have that maybe can add some perspective into this. But in general, there was less insured double crop soybeans going on than what I initially thought. And in fact, we look at the state level data. Now, Kansas was the largest insured state. And in fact, North Carolina, which we talked about before, wasn't even a state. So there were no insured soybeans following another crop in the state of North Carolina. And so the largest production area for double crop soybeans doesn't have insurance. So it sort of opens this door as to there's more going on here than just the access and the availability to crop insurance. So we'll want to keep that in mind. Also want to mention in this crop insurance data, there were more than soybeans. And so soybeans accounted for about 98% of the double cropped acres, but there are also 5,000 acres of grain sorghum, 17,000 acres of cotton, and another 5,000 of just all other commodities. And so there's more going on here than just soybeans, although soybeans is the primary story here. Now, wrapping this up, wanted to prevent or bring up this, again, follow up on this idea that there's more going on here than just the crop insurance. I think one of the other pieces here to think about is what's the starting point for the decision? Is what we're capturing here traditional wheat acres that are being planted to soybeans? Or are these traditional soybean acres that are 
adding a wheat crop in front of them. And I think policymakers and agribusiness decision makers and even producers need to think through that human decision, that human behavior angle of these decisions before we start putting programs and policies in place that try to incentivize more combined production. Now, again, the goal here is to have more acres of production, but I think we really have to understand here is what's the dog and what's the tail and how do we make sure that we're lining this up? And I think as you move across the country, there are different crops that are leading. Maybe if you're in the central parts of Kansas or in Oklahoma, or maybe the Western portions, you know, wheat might be your primary crop. And the question is, is it worth risking planting soybeans on the backside of it? Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you're in the in Eastern Kansas, where I am familiar with, or maybe you're in Kentucky and Tennessee and Southern Illinois and Southern Indiana, you might be primarily planting soybeans. And the question is, you know, is it worth it for you to plant this wheat crop ahead of it? You're going to have a soybean yield hit, but is it worth it for you to add this soybean? So another way of framing this is if we made double cropping illegal and we banned it, which crop would be the primary one you thought of? And it wouldn't necessarily be the same answer wherever you go. So we need to think about that as we think about how do we increase double crop production. Another article here, we've already got a lot of emails about this one. It prompted a lot of ideas. Gasoline prices have turned higher as we entered the end of May. We have now crossed the 450 mark. We've spent 12 weeks consecutively above the $4 threshold. The last time we spent considerable time above $4 a gallon was in the summer of 2008. We spent seven weeks and that didn't end too well for the US economy. So everyone's sort of wondering what the implications might be of these high energy prices. As a side note, inflation-adjusted dollars, that $4 gasoline back in 2008 is about $5.30 a gallon today. So we got to use some context. We got to be careful with sort of talking about record highs and the implications of that. But that's an aside. One thing that we followed up with this week is looking at weekly gasoline consumption data. This is a really interesting data set. And of course, we were using this a lot during the pandemic. It was one of those metrics that helped us understand what was going on in the U.S. economy. And to recap, we haven't had this chart posted for several months. Last summer, we had an all-time weekly high for gasoline consumption across the 10 million barrel per day threshold. Again, the first time that's ever happened. And by the end of the summer and the fall, we were largely within the pre-pandemic range. And that range was sort of the observations from 2015 to 19. I thought that was a really uh, valuable way of thinking about gasoline story had largely recovered. Now, as we kicked off the year, gasoline consumption was sticking in that pre-pandemic range. But when gasoline prices took off at the beginning of March, a few weeks later, this weekly consumption data started to fall out. In fact, about week 13, which is the end of March 1st of April, we saw gasoline consumption fall below the sluggish levels we saw in early 2021. And as we dig into this, we can see that we're running somewhere around 91% of the pre-COVID average for the weekly data. In fact, the end of May, it was the lowest at 91%. That's the lowest we've seen since the beginning of 2021. So in 2021, we saw gasoline recover and by the middle of the year. And now in the first quarter of 2022, we've seen it fall back out of bed. It sort of hit this wall again. And so just to recap this a little bit, um, gasoline consumption has been impacted 
it's correlated with these high energy prices. That doesn't come as a surprise. And it looks like the gasoline consumption situation could be coming to a bigger, the, the headwind could be bigger as we head into this summer driving season. Of course, there's a little bit of a, a trend here. Now, this leads us to the sort of the final question that we put together in this article is, will U.S. gasoline consumption ever get back to the pre-COVID levels, pre-pandemic levels? And if you look back at the data long enough, we talked a lot about this in Corn Saves America, in the mid-2000s, gasoline consumption was on this, you know, never-ending upward trajectory, and it was going to cause all sorts of problems for the U.S. economy as energy prices got higher. So we implemented the renewable fuel standard and all the other efforts to try to curb this. And interestingly, a trend that no one thought was possible, gasoline from 2008 to 2019 had basically not increased. In fact, there was a big decline after the Great Recession and a slow recovery, but we never have gotten back over that 2008 average high. And then we saw this big step back in 2020 due to the pandemic, and we saw a recovery in 2021. But now this data, this sluggish Q2 in gasoline consumption looks like we're going to struggle to even to maintain 2021 levels. So when you combine this with all the other trends that are going on in the fuel side, electric vehicles, increased efficiencies, maybe work from home, it really starts to raise the question as gasoline consumption going to continue to, will we get back to those pre-levels? Will we see future growth? Will we see some sort of uh, new plateau that's slightly lower than the pre-pandemic levels? And of course, the implications that might have on renewable biofuels or renewable fuels and how that thinks about the market size. So we're going to continue to flesh that out in the future articles, but just want to sort of encourage you to take a look at these charts and these articles and really dive into the thinking just a little bit more. Now, as a reminder, the Forecast questions with respect to the yield contest are still live. They're still out there. Interestingly, the probability of above trend normal yields or 181 bushels for corn, it keeps falling. It's about 25% chance right now. I'm still way above that one. I was joking with Brent the other day. I'm going to go to zero for the next few months just to get my score back, kind of right size with being back consistent. But, you know, that I guess that's a forecasting uh, strategy. Soybeans, the probability below trend at normal, or 51.5, it's fallen again this week. It had hanging out right around 30%, but some folks updated their forecast, and it's also dropped to 25%. Also want to circle back and have you think a little bit about acreage. A lot of conversation about the prevent plant situation. Don't want to discount that, but keep in mind there's three buckets there. What's going to happen with corn acres? And we asked about the probability of it increasing versus the March estimate of 89.5. There's the soybean question. Oh, it's the probability of it being more than a 90.0 estimate back in March. And then the combination of those two crops, corn plus soybeans, 180.5. A lot of conversations with folks back in March said, oh, you know, 89.5 million will be the smallest number the USDA prints for the corn crop. 91 will be the biggest number for soybeans. And now that we're talking about this late plant, preventive plant, I think it always you know raises the question about, okay, how much confidence do we have that 89.5 will be the smallest? Even though the prices have gone one way, Mother Nature is at bat and has an impact at that. But then also thinking about, okay, if we pull down combined corn and soybean acres, how are we going to adjust that combined? Will it come all out of soybeans? all out of corn or will it come out of them kind of uniformly? 
one idea that Brent and I have talked a lot about and that we've tried to keep in mind is this idea that oftentimes, or more often than not, a majority of time, we see combined corn and soybean acres go up or go down. What we don't necessarily see is the trade-off between the two crops. Or another way of framing this is if we knew what prevent planting was in May, we could get really a pretty good accuracy as to what the June acreage number was. And so a majority of that error or that uh, uncertainty between March and June is mother nature influence around this prevent plant. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. Of course, combating mother nature this year is frankly strong commodity prices, strong economic incentive to plant that. And an idea that we're going to hopefully share, and we need to get this framed up a little more, we continue to share is the idea to prevent plant is the decision is ultimately an economic decision that's influenced by assumptions of agronomic outcomes or agronomic implications of planting length. Now, there's some uncertainty around the actual agronomic, the yield hit, so to speak. But keep in mind that the overall profitability situation is strong. Corn prices today are much higher than they were back in March. So all these are, you know, offsetting the mother nature effect. I guess another way of framing this is if we were in a complete repeat of 2019, 2019 was of course during the trade war, low commodity prices, tight margins. If we had that year, that planting conditions in that economic year of 2018, but if we took those planting conditions and moved them to 2022, it would probably be inappropriate to assume the exact same outcome. A lot of this of course goes back to the economic implications of those agronomic assumptions that are in place. So I'm going to wrap this up this week at this point, encourage you to go update your forecast, encourage you to go and check out the latest content and stay up to date. And in the meantime, stay curious. (music) 